You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends. Bienvenidos. Welcome. I'm coming to you from Mexico. If you follow me on Instagram at man underscore overseas, then you may know I talked about how easy it was to get here. I couldn't believe it. There was hardly anybody at the airport. We flew out of Houston Hobby. There were no lines at check-in. There were none at security. Probably the only negatives that I could see were that you had limited choice of restaurants and most of the restrooms were closed. You do need to wear a mask if you fly, but there were no health questionnaires. There were no temperature checks upon arrival. The whole thing kind of felt like an exercise in don't ask, don't tell. We weren't even asked why we were traveling. Evidently, the U.S.-Mexico land border is still closed, but if you want to take to the air and fly across that same border, no problemo. Before introducing my guest, I thought I would riff on something I've been passionate about lately, And that is how this pandemic has affected us personally, maybe emotionally and mentally. And then before we start, I'll offer my help to anyone who needs it. For many of us, these months of quarantine have deadened our spirit, and I hate to see it. So I referenced a minute ago what I shared on Instagram. I was so ecstatic when I got here that I took to IG stories to encourage others to come here too. And I realized not all of you listening will be able to book a flight that leaves tomorrow. But for those of you who are in a fortunate position, let's say you've maintained your well-paying job through this mess, or maybe you have money that you've been saving for a vacation that you plan to take later this year, I would encourage you to take that vacation now. And you might say, well, that's not a good idea. It's too risky. I think we'll wait this thing out and get it behind us and then maybe look at going to the beach or something. If that's you, by all means, you do you. But I'm going to give you a few things to consider. One, life is a series of calculated risks. Two, the joy that Lady O and I have gotten from experiencing this little Mexican town that we love in a way that we hadn't before. Well, it's tough to put into words. It is so peaceful and quiet right now in Mexico. And even though everything is closed except for grocery stores and pharmacies, I find that we're able to do more of what we like to do here than we were in, say, Houston or New Orleans, where we spent a lot of time these last few months. You're a little bit restricted. They do have a curfew in place from 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. But if you're closer to, say, 40 years old than you are a teenager, how much of a problem is that for you, really? (laughs) I mean, how much... How many times a week do you go out at night until 11 or 12 o'clock at night? It's wonderful here right now. We're actually staying in a penthouse apartment. And you know me, if I had to pay for a luxury upgrade under normal circumstances, it's not something I would probably do. But right now, you can get 33% more for your U.S. dollars than you could in January, pre-COVID. And because vacation homeowners... And Airbnb hosts have seen their pool of potential renters shrink substantially. They are offering huge discounts 
And we found that a lot of folks are willing to negotiate even beyond the hefty discount that they're already offering. At night, I like to go up and look at the stars. So that's something that I could never do before here. We spend so much time in cities that it's rare that I get to see stars. And I love to go up on the top deck here, look at the stars, and just think. What do you think about? Okay, I'll tell you. (laughs) I could look at stars for hours because I enjoy thinking. It helps me, looking at the stars, to realize the vast space of time, both before and after my existence. So if you're someone who actively seeks ways to diminish your ego, to take it down a notch, I don't know if there's a better way to achieve that than feeling insignificant under the moonlight with thousands of stars in the sky. So just gazing upward on a clear night and considering your place in the grand scheme of things is really good at diminishing your ego. And reducing your ego is a worthy pursuit. Too many people nowadays, especially those that we have to deal with, unfortunately, on a regular basis, suffer from illusions of grandeur. Or I should say just an extreme sense of self-importance. It's very common in our society. And we touched on this in a recent episode, Joseph Wells and I. The episode was called Impossible Conversations. He called it in his weekly newsletter an intellectual joust. Well, I just see it as a disagreement where what I hope listeners took away from it is that it's okay to say, I don't know. Because nothing strengthens the ego more than being right all the time. The ego loves to be right because it gives you a stronger sense of who you are. Even better, if you're right and the other person is wrong, then it gives you an imagined sense of superiority over the other person. And it's that sense of superiority that the ego craves. If there was a how-to manual for how to enhance your ego and get it even bigger, the first chapter would be about believing you're right all the time. The ego takes everything personally, which is why there's so much emotion attached to most people's opinion. And once you've so thoroughly intertwined yourself with your opinion, what happens is you get defensive about everything because you feel personally attacked. What the ego does is it confuses opinions with facts. We see this a lot too, even with very smart people. They hold prestigious degrees from expensive universities, but they've never learned the egoic structures of the mind. Maybe they're listening, but I doubt it. (laughs) I once knew one of these know-it-all types who would look to see where someone had gone to school before deciding whether or not to take them seriously. True story. To him, credentials were the sole indicators of intelligence and whether that person had an opinion worthy of consideration. But that's for another day. For now, I'll just say, you don't want to be someone who easily allows your judgments and your opinions to be infused with your person. Once they become intertwined, your ego grows significantly and you get defensive and real sensitive and reactive. None of that is good. 
Another thing I think about when I look up at the stars, I think about my friends and how grateful I am to experience this awesome existence at the same time as them. Because when you think about it, they happen to be brought into the world at the same time I was, mostly between the years of 1977 and 1981. And because of that, I'm a better man. And I wouldn't want to have been born, let's say, between 81 and 84, because I've met some of those people. (laughs) They're not as good. (laughs) I'm only slightly kidding. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Why buy when you can rent an item from someone in your neighborhood with Idol? It's easy. You have an item, you list that item for rent, another app user is looking for that item and rents it from you, and you get paid. Rent everything you need, when you need it, in a location close to home. Get the app today. Visit getidle.com. Idol. Rent anything. You know who else should come to Mexico? If you're someone who works from home but can technically work from anywhere, I'm going to suggest you come. Or let's say you can't work from home, but the added stress of the pandemic as you think in a getaway might be nice. It might help you to reboot your operating system or be the reset button you net you desperately need right now. Or maybe you've got your own cliche for clearing the mechanism. <laughs> you just need a little encouragement, someone you know who's done it. Well, that's what I'm here for. When I got the idea to leave America for a little while, I booked a flight next day. And here I am sitting by the pool, beverage of choice, streaming into your AirPods or however you're listening. So go ahead and tell the boss after two months of this thing that you want to get away, that you really could use a recharge of the old batteries and make like a tree or make like a sheep and get the flock out of there. And by flock, I mean take the fam out of there too. Bring them with you. For a lot of you, leaving the kids with grandparents isn't a good option right now. I know that. I've seen a few families around here, families of four and five, splashing around the pool, laughing and cutting up, filled with joy. It could be you. I think there'd be a lot more happy families here, but most people don't know the secret that I'm sharing with you now, which is the Riviera Maya is open, baby. It's open, baby. The deal is hotels aren't allowed to have more than 15% capacity. So that's why if you log on to Hotels.com or Booking, it'll show you that due to COVID, they're not accepting any bookings right now. So you know who can help? Yo, me, I can help. Just shoot me a DM. I'll find you a place to stay. I've been here enough. I know a guy that knows a guy. Even seeing different scenery when you walk outside is uplifting. We live in an age of constant connection. The best way to disentangle yourself from the interwebs is to turn your phone off and head to a faraway land, go for walks. So I hope you're on a plane June 1 or June 2nd. I'll give you a couple days to think it over, (laughs) but not too much time. Part of living a bigger life is to act decisively, spontaneously. Good fortune favors the bold. Something I tweeted recently, I said, there's not much in this world for which your life is worth deferring. Live immediately. A round-trip flight to Mexico might be just the thing you need. The Riviera Maya, it's open, baby. I'm confident it would not only lift your spirits, but the spirit of everyone you take with you. And who knows, it might be just the trip you're talking about the rest of your life. 
Now, you men who can't get away, if I can speak candidly with you for a minute. I talk to friends and I coach guys every week who are struggling. So I know what you're going through. A few of the guys I coach have been furloughed. One lost his job entirely. You add the stress of not working and not seeing paychecks coming in to the demands your family is already has on you. And these odd times that we're living through become that much more difficult. You add to that the fact that you can't escape to the bar to have a beer with your buddy or go to the gym for an hour and push weight around. It, it starts to feel like you're trapped with no escape. If that describes you, I want you to know that you're not alone. There are a lot of men feeling what you're going through. If you want to chat, you let me know. We'll schedule a call. It's not weak to want a, another man to talk to. Men need each other. We weren't designed to be surrounded by family every minute of every day. From time immemorial, we've been out conquering the world so as to provide for our families. That's what men do. But many of us can't do that right now. We're cooped up in the house. We're playing Mr. Mom. We're getting asked to do things to help in the middle of what are normally our most productive hours of the workday. So productivity may be shot. Maybe your sleep is all messed up. You need to take 15 and walk around the block and talk to another man. There's no shame in that. In fact, I do it all the time. You can bounce ideas off of me. We can talk about stuff your wife is tired of hearing about, macro man stuff, geopolitics, investment, financial management, philosophy, whatever you want to talk about. Some guys right now just can't see, seem to shake this persistent funk that they're in. If that describes you and you want to talk, shoot me a DM. I'm here for you. I read a stat last night that said 26% of millennials don't have good friends. And 30% of millennials don't have a best friend. I don't care how old you are. Men lean on each other in tough times. It's what we do. Iron sharpens iron. Okay, let's get hyped for today's podcast. I relish the opportunity to chat with anyone who lived in the former Soviet Union. My guest was born in Ukraine and moved to the United States as a young boy. So he talks about how his family was affected by communist rule. For example, he was raised in the church, but of course there's no God under communism. You basically worship the state. So he has a story of walking out of church and there being KGB agents sitting in their cars just taking a tally of who's coming out. It's crazy stuff. It's hard for us Americans to fathom what life was like living behind the Iron Curtain. He tells the story of his mom was actually valedictorian in high school, but she had the title stripped from her because she believed in God. That's why when I take a small group to tour Prague, one of the things I make sure we do is to go to the Communism Museum. It's important to understand what those folks went through. The museum's name, the theme, is Communism, the Dream, the Reality, and the Nightmare. My guest name is Roman Prokopchuk, he is the founder of Nova Zora Digital and host of the Digital Savage Experience. He and his wife foster four children, and he's an all-around good dude. So I'm excited to have him. You won't hear me say without further ado, I'm just going to bring on Mr. Roman Prokopchuk. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I love a good immigrant story, and I know that you're originally from Ukraine. Does that mean you were raised in the former Soviet Union? Yeah, so uh, I came to the U.S. in 1990. Uh, Ukraine was still under 
the Soviet Union gained its independence in 1992. We went through Vienna, Austria, Rome, Italy to get here with uh, six other family members. So I spent four and a half years of my life. I've been back twice since then. I haven't been back since the whole thing with Russia happened in eastern Ukraine. But um, yeah, I mean, I still vaguely remember some of the things like standing in like bread lines with my mom and like KGB implications, uh, not being able to go to church and different, you know, restrictions in that sense as well. That's so interesting. So your early years were spent behind the Iron Curtain. Is that a word that's used in the eastern part of Europe or is that just a western term? It's a western because there's a lot of things that aren't like one-on-one translations. My mom had classes uh, like she took uh, apart and put together AK-47s and like high school, junior high to be like preparedness if uh, the U.S. invaded and they had like atomic uh, bomb drills and had gas masks in their classroom. So it was like a lot of crazy stuff and shooting practice in junior high school, high school. Apparently she was the best in terms of putting together and uh, taking apart her AK-47. Wow. So she prepared for an attack from the Americans and yet immigrated to America. How does that happen? I believe in God. I have like faith in my life. And we went to church. You weren't allowed, obviously, to have religion under communism because technically they don't adhere to a, you know, serving God or having God in your life. So it was fairly restrictive. Um, She finished as like valedictorian in high school, but that was stripped from her because she went to church. And uh, at that point, I guess Gorbachev started kind of lifting restrictions in terms of letting people out. So you had to get sponsored. So we had a distant relative here that acted as our sponsor. And the path to get here was through uh, Vienna, Austria, which we stopped for a few weeks, and then Rome, Italy, which I was there for about two months, and then came here to New Jersey. I was supposed to end up in San Mateo, California instead of New Jersey, where I've been since I came here. So I think the dynamic of West Coast, East Coast would have been a lot different if I ended up in California in terms of like just thinking about it, how I would have been raised or the directions I would have went and the the opportunities I would have had. How many siblings do you have? I have one younger brother. He's um, he will actually be 31. Uh, next week. So So when you all immigrated, were you escaping something terrible that was happening at the time in Ukraine? I mean, just a crappy situation at that point. It wasn't like direct. I mean, there there were family members, distant family members, like there were labor camps in Siberia and stuff like that, I guess, formal name like Gulag. If you spoke out against the government, you'd just be sent there for like hard labor, five, 10 years. And I mean, in terms of hard labor, that obviously breaks you down. And majority of people ended up not making it out of there. But it was just like an opportunity. I guess I guess the um, the tag was like more uh, leaving because of religious persecution um, as you know as a reason. So you know we, we came here and uh, kind of had to uh, I remember my dad and my grandfather. My grandfather was already retired in Ukraine because he was in his mid 50s and then he had to start back up. He was doing roofing for another 20 years into his 70s, which is crazy because there were dudes coming over from Eastern Europe just to make a few bucks and then go back over like uh, early 20s, mid 20s. And they would like did it for a week or two and would quit. But he was doing it, you know, winter, summer, spring, fall for, you know, 20 years, basically Monday to Friday, he would leave at seven and get home at seven and only had Sunday off, which he went to church twice. And basically that was for 20 years. What sort of traits did you pick up from your grandfather? 
Um, hardworking. Uh, I would like to, I mean, he complained less than I complained because I think like the previous generations have it harder. So like more kind of hardened. So he would never complain. Um, he would just, you know, get up, uh, you know, give his all to others and then kind of be served or, you know, put himself last. So try to have more of a kind of a, a serving mindset in terms of leadership and anything I'm dealing with in terms of helping other people before myself. You know, including the situation I'm in in terms of a foster parent, um, in terms of you know business helping people out with no charge, in terms of information, doing pro bono stuff, helping out in the community. So just kind of giving back and being more about legacy. What was his opinion of communism? He grew up, I guess he was like nine or ten during World War II, and we're from um, Western Ukraine, so we're about thirty miles from the Polish border, from a city called Lviv, L-V-I-V. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's over 750 years old. And I think Russia likes to think that all these little uprisings and you know nationalism originate from that region and that city. So uh, he remembers things from even back in the day because when uh, the Germans invaded, he actually spoke German. So he made uh, they made him go around because you had to basically quarter troops back then, at least in that part of Ukraine, and he would have to go and translate a German into Ukrainian, then, you know, there'd be five soldiers in your house, so on and so forth. So, I mean, in, in some ways, he saw that when the Germans invaded, they actually treated the situation. Obviously, there were atrocities in terms of, you know, concentration camps and stuff like that. But when they first invaded, the situation was a little even better than, you know, the communist forces and communism. What he's told me that that was kind of, um, you know, a back and forth because then they got pushed out and then the Russians came in and so on and so forth. But yeah, he grew up during that time. And then after which he, uh, he served as a, I don't know what the formal name, he, he was a, in a, a tank division. He, he drove a tank because everybody had to serve. Even today, Ukraine is probably the poorest country in Europe, right? Alongside Moldova, maybe? Um, it, it depends what, what part. I mean, it's a country with a, with a big black, mar black market economy. And I think that translated from during uh, uh, the Soviet Union and Soviet times. So everybody kind of hustles and barters on the side. So they have their kind of like standard job and then they have, you know, stuff they do on the side. And I think everybody has kind of a communal garden outside of the city if they live in a city. So there's that kind of like not depending on, I guess, the government for, uh, for anything. and functioning in this kind of like, you know, gray area, I guess, where, you know, the goods and services are in track. I mean, it, it depends what part of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine's one of the biggest, if not the biggest country in Europe. It's technically the breadbasket of Europe. So it has a lot of resources, but those have been traditionally kind of squandered because it has like one of the highest rates of corruption, government corruption in Europe. And even now, and after the whole, you know, Maidan revolution and stuff like that, there's still corrupt situations, you know, corrupt judges, uh, corrupt situations where like if you start a business and somebody pays more to try to push you out in terms of bribing an official, you may get, you know, different uh, licenses taken away, that kind of stuff. So it's just like this cycle of, I guess, I don't know if it's a Soviet mindset, but um, it's been kind of perpetuating over time. But like the city I'm from, it's it's a fa fairly well-to-do city. Um, and like I said, I wouldn't say it's like impoverished, but people kind of make do with what they have. 
they definitely have less and make less in terms of, I guess, the European standard. But I think most people always have food on the table and are always kind of in a hustle uh, mindset. And Ukraine has been in a territorial dispute since 2014, right, over the Crimean Peninsula? Well, Crimea got totally annexed, which obviously Ukraine doesn't, um, uh, you know, see or legitimize. And then the like two provinces in eastern Ukraine, um, basically bordering Russia, that's where like the separatist forces basically, but it was, it's a Russian proxy war where they had soldiers come over. I mean, they can really say what, whatever they want to say, but it's, it's this whole thing perpetuated by Russia because there was talks about Ukraine moving to the uh, EU and, and being more Western focused. And they basically want Ukraine to be kind of a buffer to the West. And I think kind of Putin's ambitions were to build up uh, a trade union, but something loosely uh, where, you know, the Soviet Union technically in his eyes went during their heydays, I guess. So Ukraine being part of that and then like Belarus and other countries. But I mean, it's just this like stalemate right now where it's not necessarily a ceasefire because people are getting wounded and dying every day. I think in terms of Russia and like Putin's ambitions, I think he wants more of an ongoing stalemate because I don't think, you know, if everything ceases and there's whatever, you know, agreement, it, you know, Russia kind of fades away. And I think that's been on the back burner with the whole pandemic. So people in, you know, different regional things aren't necessarily looking at it from a, like a global perspective, like, you know, people in the U.S., unless you're Ukrainian, happen to be in the U.S. and follow it. So I think those things are put on the back burner with like the whole pandemic. But I mean, it's still going on. It's not like an active uh, conflict, but there's still uh, deaths and people being wounded on a daily basis. What were you thinking when you heard that that was happening in 2014? I mean, it was crazy. I mean, I didn't think um, like Crimea would be like just given, but it was the government and military were like just stripped based on all those years of corruption. So the previous president Yanukovych basically robbed billions and billions of dollars. The the army was like non-functional. So basically before the army even got to some kind of formal capability, you had like militias and stuff taking up arms and fighting in the East, uh, kind of regional groups from going over for, and not being even in a formal military, just whatever they had to fight with. So, I mean, it was, a, I guess, a scary situation because there were talks of kind of a full-out invasion and then, you know, Russia can get to the west of Ukraine and I don't know how many hours. But, I mean, that would have been great, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be able to hold it regardless. So it is what it is, but it's a shame how many people and people that are still getting wounded and you know, killed as a result of, you know, for what? I mean, I don't see something that's being fought over that's like legitimate. What does Putin say the reason is for all this conflict? Well, he doesn't say that he doesn't say he's involved with it. He said it's separatist uh, forces in those provinces that have a mindset that's more towards Russia and kind of that old uh, Soviet Union communism kind of, uh, you know, regime. And they want independence and they want to be uh, separate provinces but have like uh being independent but still part of ukraine he wants this like stupid uh government classification where they can like favor towards russia but they're still part of ukraine and they can hold their own elections and this and that but basically it's these two provinces people's republic of whatever and whatever um right now and um most countries don't really um uh 
recognize them in any formal fashion. It's just like crazy in my opinion. I want to switch gears to the relationship you had with your father. So you've said that he was abusive. Are there any specific memories from childhood that you've deliberately suppressed? uh, Maybe because they're too painful. I mean, at this point, I don't know if any of them were even suppressed. I think, I, I mean, I think when people go through something, they are hesitant to go to therapy or talk to someone. Well, I mean, I've done that and I kind of uncovered. So he's coming from a narcissistic standpoint, in, in my opinion. And he's, I haven't seen my father in about 12 years, but once in a while he'll text me, but it's not like a genuine text. He's always wanting something in return. Um, this, that, or the other. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember vividly him, you know, uh, beating my mom, my aunt, my grandparents, like throwing my mom down the stairs when she was pregnant with my brother that she went to the doctor. He was supposed to be kind of stillborn. And I mean, there were situations where I was scared as like a four or five-year-old and like situations in that situation, it came to mind, like me getting a knife and, you know, coming and possibly stabbing him or doing whatever to defend my mom. Like that, that was in the back of my mind as a four or five-year-old. And obviously it never came to that, but I mean, I think it was close, but, but I mean, I remember that like the yelling, the screaming, the physical abuse, the, you know, the infidelity and, you know, 12 years ago, she finally kind of got a restraining order and left him. And um, I think the only reason she was really with him at that point is um, for me and my brother because I think she tried to leave when we were younger, but basically he said, well, I'm going to keep the kids because I'm making the money. And at that point she was more stay at home um, and I'm going to get the kids. And obviously she didn't know the laws or, you know, the rules in the U S yet and kind of got scared into the situation per se. But, um, you know, eventually she did leave. Do you think those situations are more common in parts of the world like Ukraine? There was that kind of mindset, but the stigma over time is slowly changing. So things like domestic uh, uh, violence and abuse didn't get punished criminally. So if a woman called like the police on the, the, you know, the husband or the partner or the boyfriend or whatever, they would just shrug it off. There wouldn't be any formal charges um, filed. It was kind of a, I guess, a norm because it was more of a, you know, a masculine kind of focus where women don't necessarily line up to men in terms of society, I guess. But I think with the change of time, that is uh, changing somewhat. And I mean, it's a shame. There's a lot of people that come over here with that same mindset, my father being one of them, and they either change, genuinely change, or don't. I mean, eventually my mom kind of threatened him and got a restraining order and so on and so forth. So he's kind of a force to abide by that or you know, go to jail. But like, in my opinion, there was that. I mean, it still exists, but I think with time changing, uh, people having access to the internet, women getting more kind of um, you know prestigious roles and more on an equal playing field, that's slowly changing, in my opinion. What of your experience with your dad do you think has fueled your ambition? It se- I say that because it seems like a lot of very successful men had problems with their father or even maybe lost their father at a young age. Do you think that has fueled your ambition in any way? I mean, it fueled my ambition for being a better person than he was. So I remember telling myself when I was little, um, if I was ever to be a father, either biologically or through adoption or whatever children I had in my life, I would be a better role model and a, you know, a better father to them and have that time invested. Because for the years, he was still with my mom. He was never around. 
I mean, he had other things that he was focusing on. He was never there to do things with us or for like the major milestones, things of that nature. So for me, like me being a foster parent now and up to now having 20 kids since June 2018, I think it's a direct result of, you know, him not being there or trying my best in that sense. Uh, I mean, he he always had a work ethic. He, you know, started his own company. He had a home improvement company. So, but I don't think I got that drive from him. I think I got it from my grandfather because my grandfather was more of a role model to me than my father was. So I don't think like for me, I came to terms at this point in my life with who my father was and who he wasn't and some of the things he's done to me directly and indirectly. But like my pursuit of success and drive isn't, I guess, directly correlated to like showing him something that I could do it or, you know, or that like proving to him something. Because for like the last 12 years of my kind of working years after during and after college, he hasn't been there. So unless he stops me on social media or whatever, he's had no contact other than a few text messages from, you know, over a decade. So I think in that sense, he's taught me of who not to be, you know, and who not to, you know, you know, focus on and and just to be there uh, for people in my life. And like going to therapy and whatever, it was, you know, I reasoned, I mean, he has a, you know, narcissistic kind of background. So he looks for things he doesn't do for things in terms of like a genuine, you know, caring, I'm going to do this for someone, I'm not looking for anything. And return if he kind of surfaces, you know, today, tomorrow, five years, it's usually like with a backstory, he needs something. So it's not like, hey, let's meet up. Let's like, hey, let's meet up because I want you to go somewhere with me because I want to show like that I'm this great father. And that's, I think that was the extent of his, I guess, fatherhood, just showing up for events like weddings or like at church for like Christmas or whatever, that he's kind of like keeping up with the times that, you know, he has his kids and his wife and everybody is dressed up and smiling, but under the surface for Myself, and I think for a lot of people out there, like that's not necessarily the case. You see a outer shell, and there is a lot more going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Have you struggled with depression? Off and on. I mean, I haven't, I guess, um, been diagnosed with it, but I feel like there are extreme highs and lows at times, especially when there's quiet around and you like, you know, you're forced to think in situations. I think, you know, I get like spikes, happy, sad, but. I don't think to a, to a point, like I said, where, you know, I've seen anybody, but now in terms of life with fostering and different things going on and, and when you're super busy and like I said, you know, with, you know, having four kids right now and this whole pandemic thing and, uh, you know, my relationship, my marriage, uh, friends and family, you know, different people dealing with different things, sickness and different issues and uh, my company and you know, doing work directly for another company and the podcast, when there's so many things revolving, you put that on a back burner per se, you don't have that time to really sit and kind of like be one with your thoughts in a way. And I guess it helps in a way, but it also buries it for later because eventually it'll, it'll come up to a certain extent. Yeah. So you're a proponent of processing those feelings and working through them. Is that what therapy helps you do? Yeah. And I mean, for me, knowing that they're there and having like a safe place to express them and, and understand them, but not bearing them and, and being afraid to actually feel them. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they make you who you are and you can't really hide from them because 
if there's those negative feelings, they become like compound in interest. They build over time and different other things happen to you maybe now, tomorrow, that add to it from a negative or traumatic standpoint maybe. And then eventually it's just going to be like a flood. You know what I mean? And you're either going to have some kind of breakdown or something of that nature. And I think that's just the way I deal with it for me. It's, it's been working and obviously I'm a work in progress. So I try to you know meditate, try to do other things. Uh, you know, have faith, pray, work out just to kind of release different kind of like negative energies. So you mentioned your faith and prayer. Did that come from your parents or did it start once you got in the States? How did, how does that come into play? I've always been uh, like part of a family that went to church, believed in God, but eventually like you have to figure out what you want to believe in, what you accept. So, you know, when I got old enough, you know, for me, I accepted God, you know, as my Lord and Savior and try to have a personal relationship with God. And obviously, that's also <clears throat> an ongoing thing. I mean, there's falls in that walk and things of that nature. But I think prayer and meditation and different things of that nature really kind of, I guess, the saying like calms the beast per se, and really kind of like lets those negative thoughts and negativity kind of, uh, I guess, float away, or at least in my opinion and in my experiences. Yeah, so typically kids adopt whatever religion the parents were, but where you were raised, there couldn't be any religion. It had to be done clandestinely or, or secretively. How did it come into your life initially? Were they practicing? Yeah, we, we still went to church. You know what oh. I mean? There were still churches. So it was, it was just like KGB cars outside of church. <laughs> it would take tallies of who came out and just like oh, followed you, bugged your house, followed you in a hallway to your car, apartment to try to uh, intimidate you. So... They went to a, a Pentecostal church. I mean, I, I guess associate as non-denominational per se. Me, it's more about having a personal relationship with God. But we went to church or other people went to church. People were like pastors were taking them, like I said, put into, you know, different, um, you know, hard labor camps and things of that nature. And if you like publicly spoke about your religion, you would definitely get taken. So it was just like this, you know, underground network of churches per se. I've always felt bad for ambitious young guys who came out of college around the time of the Great Recession. And I know that you're about five years younger than me. You went to Rutgers University, right? Yeah. What was your degree in? Criminal justice. And the semester before I graduated, I had an internship with the Secret Service on the uh, counterfeit currency squad. Interesting. What, what prompted that? What was your interest in Secret Service? Uh, it was just one of those things. I thought it was cool. But then being in that kind of, um, I guess, profession and looking at how their lives were, seeing that they have to move post every few years. And if your director hates you, they will send you to like Fargo or Anchorage where there's like one other person in that office and you just like rot away for years until you get, you know, re reassigned. And then at least once in your career, you have to do the DC kind of protective detail as well. So in that point, I thought about if I ever have a family, this isn't going to be the best thing to move around every few years around the country. Like it may be cool from a work perspective, but it would have a strain. So I thought I wasn't going to go that route. But like you said, right when I graduated, state, local and federal agencies froze hiring and you know spending money. So I couldn't find anything. And that's where I kind of pivoted into digital marketing. And I've been in that kind of field ever since. So I guess it's a blessing and a curse. It, it brought about me in the industry that I'm in and grew in for the last, you know, over a decade. But, you know, it, I guess if the recession didn't happen, I might have been in, you know, a state, local or federal uh, agency at this point. 
So not quite the gulag, but South Dakota isn't ideal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you can't compl- compare it one to two, one to one. But I mean, in terms of like first world problems, like entertainment and like your ideal post, that would not be you know fun. I mean, for me, I don't mind the the quiet. I mean, I don't mind the city. I would be able to adapt, but it was just like you wouldn't be using your skills to your full full abilities, and that's kind of important to me you would be kind of mentally complacent and kind of creatively dying sure so you developed other skill sets right yep so you know i was kind of down and i would say at that point kind of depressed for months applying to jobs and only thing that really helped with that for me is going to the gym and kind of releasing it in a positive manner and i ran into somebody that i became a friend with and he said basically one day come come out to my car i want to give you something to help you out, which could have went several ways. He could have given me, you know, uh, a kilo of something to sell, but uh, (laughs) he actually opened his trunk and gave me a packet about search engine optimization. And he said, read this, read up on it on the internet for a month or two, and you can do it for my company. And at that point, you know, it was necessity for me. I, I thought I had nothing to lose. It seemed more lucrative because obviously the internet, social media, and digital marketing was growing at that point and, you know, continues to grow. So I thought it would be a good industry to be in and kind of a, a future-proof industry because right now everybody is forced to work remotely. And, you know, I'm still, I mean, I've been working remotely before this happened for about three to four years. So, you know, that's kind of how I got my start from a packet from a trunk and then, you know, worked my way through three director roles, uh, about 600 campaigns later, different Fortune 500 clients, starting my own agency and just running with digital marketing and growing in that field. So you have Fortune 500 clients. Do you visit their offices and do a pitch? Uh, Some of them were through uh, connections and referrals. So like, let's say there's another agency that does something well, and then they know, let's say, I do search engine optimization well or have a proven record. So they'll, part of their, you know, proposal, they'll get my quote in it. So if it gets approved, you know, me and my company would do that component of it, and they would pay me when that client would pay them. But yes, different RFPs for specific, you know, financial, pharma, and life sciences clients. A lot of the time, like the the bid process for pharma is stupid because if they see a bid that's like substantially low, they've been so programmed, uh, old style thinking that they will choose a higher bid that they're familiar with versus something that saves them money. But the other caveat is their marketing budget doesn't roll over month, I mean, year over year. So whatever they don't use, it gets lost. And a lot of times there's not that that personal kind of, I guess, emotion like a small business has in terms of like marketing or spending money on growing the business. So they throw money like it's, you know, growing on trees. (laughs) I've I've witnessed, I used to sell software. So I'm very aware of how all that process works. So can you give me a, a day in the life of someone who runs an SEO firm? When I started in 2012, I guess maybe I wasn't directly thinking about future-proofing it, but I inadvertently future-proofed the business because it is remote. Anything that happens like client-side, it's just a client visit um, or a client meeting and everything else is obviously done through different means and keeping the client aware and uh, seeing the results in terms of reporting, having client-side dashboards so they're more connected. So it's not just one report a month. They actually see what's going on, some of the moving parts, and basically having people in place that 
mainly run the accounts day to day and I'm more of the tactical and strategic component. So I can focus on other passions, different investments, different direct relationships with, you know, other opportunities and things of that nature. How much of your business is Google related? I would say 60%-ish. Wow. So that would be search, Google search, because obviously it's still the leader in the U.S. market. And, uh, you know, Google ads, Google display from the paid perspective. So do you mess with YouTube? Yes. you. I mean, YouTube, if you want to talk about Google, YouTube is part of that equation because it is directly owned by Google. Um, from a video perspective, if there's... Uh, clients that do video really well, obviously, basically positioning a client where their audience is and, you know, reaching the right audience. So some people have the strategy of like, let me sell everything just to make more money. But you don't necessarily not everyone needs everything. You know what I mean? In terms of a business, you may not want or have to be on TikTok because that's not where your target demo from a social perspective. So it's understanding where your kind of target audience is and being able to reach them online and you know, share what you're about, why you, your differentiators, and making an emotional connection so that user remembers you and comes to you either now or with that kind of good marketing that should have an emotional trigger, they'll remember you down the line for you know, if they need help with whatever you do. What a valuable skill set to have. Do you think that you'll always be doing online? Do you think that you'll always make money online in some capacity? Well, I mean, I think in marketing. So if something else comes out outside of the um, the internet that you can market with or uh, people, you know, share their business or what they do, I think moving and basically I follow also emerging technology. So I don't necessarily just stay with a platform like Facebook. Things like, you know, TikTok just came out. So studying, you know, business that, that can be on TikTok, you know, how effective are TikTok ads that they're rolling out now. So it's basically emerging technologies now too that you can harness and help clients grow in that sense if their uh, target audience is moving and spending their online time, which especially is important now, because in my opinion, more people are spending time online with the current situation being you know, stuck at home for a large percentage of the world. What is one trick or tip that maybe your best friend knows because of his friendship with you that you've shared with him that has helped him improve his presence online or, or market himself or, or just one thing that you would say that, that it's maybe not so common that you know? I would just, I would say like the, the right tool set for what someone's trying to achieve. So if you come to me with a, a problem or who you're trying to reach, figuring out the right messaging, the right platform, and then telling them personally, the tools that I use to achieve that. Because it's, I mean, there's plenty of tools out there, but I've seen hundreds of tools throughout the years. And I have like a go-to stack in terms of achieving goals for competitive analysis, for research, for tracking. And a lot of them are fairly cost-effective. So even if you are a, a small business, you know, it may be a $20 a month investment to really kind of take your either content strategy or your research to the next level. If you wanted to reach an audience that was 34 or younger, would you use TikTok? Is that where people are flocking nowadays? I would test it just because TikTok got really old really quick because of the pandemic. I think it was one of like the fastest downloaded apps in history in the time frame 
of from March till now. I think there was like one point something or two billion downloads in addition to what they already had. And I mean, I would test TikTok because it's like a wild west in terms of organic search. So for example, I'm not saying I'm a TikTok expert, but I am testing. So right now, because I do like to advocate and share my story about foster care and a lot of like the nonsense we we feel and experience with the system because the system is broken in the US and could be improved a lot. I do a lot of things in terms of like different interviews about solely um, a foster care. So a lot of the content is about my experiences, things that I've done. And there's been a lot of great feedback, kids that have been in the foster care system saying, you know, we wish we had a home like you because it's crazy situations. You know, I was in the system for like uh, seven years, I went through 50 foster homes and all of them were like bad or abusive and whatnot. And I wish I had a home like yours or uh, foster parents that left because they've experienced the same frustrations or good caseworkers that, you know, are, you know, truly there for the kids and, and know that there's these bad things going on, but they can't do a lot. And there's like a lot of conversation back and forth and it's created somewhat of a community. And one uh, video I shared about the uh, the loss that I felt in terms of our first placement, two boys we had, basically we were told we were going to be able to adopt them. And after the year, they got reunified with their mom. Basically, my personal feelings about that. So it took a minute to record and a minute to edit. Right now, it has 90,000 views, 5,000 likes, and like 400 comments. And actually, through one of those posts, I got contacted about a magazine in New York City about my experiences during uh, the COVID epidemic and how I'm doing as a foster parent and the different frustrations we have with the system during this whole structure. So if I never had a TikTok account or was testing, I would never have gotten that media opportunity or that additional exposure. What made you want to foster kids in the first place? Last three years, we've done infertility treatments. We spent about 100K out of pocket. And in that time, we've had five miscarriages. So we're technically fostered to adopt. So if we have a child and the biological parent or guardian has their rights terminated permanently, they would come to us if you know we it's a good fit, the child wants to be adopted and we're willing to adopt them. We're kind of the first ones in the list to be asked. Um, and we thought it would possibly be a good way to, you know, start a family in that sense. We are still naturally trying and through the whole, you know, infertility um struggle. But um in terms of fostering, we thought we'd be able to help kids. And I mean, we see a lot of crazy situations, kids that are like three, four years old that have been more through, through more than, you know, grown adults have been in their lifetime. So, I mean, it's very sad in terms of the situations that they're coming from. And in terms of holes in the system that kids get put back into the exact same situation, exact same things happen that, you know, could have been avoided and then get thrown right back in the system, destroying the kid for, you know, future and, you know, when, when they could have been a productive member of society, they're going to have these additional scars that may lead to, you know, gangs and uh, drug use and other things in terms of being like trafficked and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's about 700,000 kids in the foster system in the U.S. And a lot of them, you know, keep going in and out or age out. When you age out, you have like a 50% chance um, to fall into drugs and then other negative behaviors. At what age do you age out? 18, but there's circumstances where you can still receive certain services when you're 21, but a lot of the time the kids aren't made aware of these services. Did you say earlier that 
you had kids in your home for about a year and then they were reunified with their biological parents? Yeah, we've had a few reunifications. We've had that that was our first placement. So we got licensed May 31st, 2018. First placement we got was June 1st, 2018. So it was two boys, two brothers. And we get a call. We initially wanted one child. You don't know really what you're getting into when you start fostering. It's kind of like a scared straight thing. You jump into it <laughs> and it's nothing like the the class, uh, you know, lectures and schooling or whatever. You have to do like 40 something hours. So basically we were told, you know, we're, you're kind of the last on the list. The previous foster home said that, you know, they can't handle them anymore. Um, and if, you know, you don't say yes, we're splitting them up. And a lot of the time to get kids placed, there's this kind of like guilt trip that's presented. Um, so we said, you know, can we let these kids be split up? And we thought, no. So we took kind of that jump. But like the caveat is it was positioned like this case is most likely moving to termination of parental rights. Well, obviously in foster care, anything can happen. So in 24 hours, you could think you're adopting that the kid, you know, tomorrow and then somebody out of the woodwork uh, comes out and it restarts the clock all over again. So it's very uncertain. So like I said, we've had, we had the kids for a year and then they, re, they were reunified with their biological mom after that year. Does your wife work? Yep. And she just finished one degree and she's finishing up another degree. And we have four kids right now. And the caveat of that now during COVID is they have 20, call, 20 hours of calls a week. Dealing with all the things that the kids have is another full-time job with, because there's four children from three different families. So each child or the three different families all have their own caseworker, their own nurse, their own law guardian. And each of these, each of these calls are multiplied by three. So some calls are an hour, some calls are two, and then they all have calls with biological moms, dads, family members, and then other people in terms of kind of like uh, different nonprofit organizations and things of that nature. So when you add up the time, it's 20 hours of calls, which they're little kids. They can't even sit through 10 minutes. So it's, it's been a challenge for, you know, the last eight weeks with that. Do you get financial support? Well, if you become a foster, um, foster parent, you get a stipend. The stipend is meant to buy the children clothes, food, different activities, if you're putting in like karate or sports, if you're taking them to, let's say, a vacation in-state, out-of-state, what have you, um, you know, passes to things like Six Flags or if you go to other things like that. Uh, oftentimes, you hear about people basically, obviously, not giving anything to the children and taking those stipends and basically stacking up a, a lot of kids and then just taking all that money. It's really a few hundred dollars a month per child. And it really does, if you are doing it for the right reason, only covers kind of the bare necessities. If you do activities and try to enrich the, the kids' lives with activities, it definitely, you start paying out of pocket for stuff. So, Are you able to save and invest some money for the long term? Yeah. I mean, I've tried. I mean, there's been things that We've struggled with, it seems like when everything is, is right in life, either personally or professionally, it doesn't last for long. Something ends up imploding either personally or professionally. So uh, in October, my dog was diagnosed with uh, osteosarcoma. So she, she's nine. So I made a decision. We made the decision not to put her down, have her have the surgery. Surgery plus the six months of chemo was 15K out of pocket. Yeah, I mean, I have kind of your, your standard investments, like, you know, messed around in crypto a little bit, 
uh, stocks, IRAs in terms of having a, um, a uh, what's it called, a SEP IRA for like your personal business, which obviously helps with taxes and things of that nature. And I own my own home, so I have equity in that. Like if I have the opportunity, I want to go into more kind of like rental properties and stuff like that. Just diversifying and having enough like a kind of rainy day fund. So if something happens, it can get me through obviously a duration of time. Do you have car payments, you and your wife? Yeah. Um, <laughs> my car that I had, I mean, I don't think it was the smartest purchase. Um, if I can do it again, I wouldn't necessarily get that car or um, or buy a car in general, maybe buy like a junk or whatever, but it's kind of a spur of the moment purchase. But yeah, there's car payments, there's different payments. There's the house, there's insurance, there's, I mean... This kind of your standard things if you own a home and you own, you know, cars and, and uh, different township things that they keep missing. I don't know why uh, my township doesn't go digital, but I keep getting warnings like my, because I didn't pay my sewer bills, they're going to put a lien on my house, which I never got the first thing in the mail because of the pandemic. So, but yeah, we have, um, yeah, we have two cars right now and uh, two, two payments that are almost done. So I know you pride yourself on being an autodidact and that you're passionate about learning and reading. How do you find time to read and do you get enough sleep? I do not get enough sleep. Um, I would say usually I go to bed at 2.33 and get up at like 7-ish, Wow, 7.30 because the kids get up at that time so I can't sleep in. When's the last time you and your wife had a vacation? After the two boys we had as our first placement were reunified. We had a family reunion in Hawaii. So we were in Hawaii last summer for two weeks, um, which is nice because my wife's grandfather lives on the North Shore of Oahu. Um, he has a property there that he bought. I mean, he lived there for his whole life, but he bought it like 40 years ago for like $20,000. The property's like $1, 2000000 million. It's like a street away from uh, the beach. It's right next to, uh, I can't even pronounce it, but it's one of the big... Uh, winter surfing spots where they have like all the competitions on the North shore. So it was a cool experience. It was definitely relaxing. And previous to us fostering, we did, you know, we did Paris, we did Iceland, you know, Caribbean, uh, we did the ice hotel in Quebec city. And like we were, we traveled a lot before, um, I guess we got into fostering. And when we had our first placement, the, the bio mom was nice. They, she let us take us uh, take them to uh, the West Coast for Thanksgiving and to Disney World and different other trips. So we try. Obviously, we're kind of limited now with travel, but that is something I enjoy. And I get, obviously, experiences and grow from you know those cultural interactions as well. Sure. Do you still have relatives in the Ukraine? And do you ever go back? Yeah, I was back 2006. It was world and ukraine was in the world cup so uh, the the first uh, knockout uh, the first like group stages were here and then when i went over they had the knockout round that i remember it went into penalty shootout uh, against switzerland and it's nothing better than being in the country that's in the world cup and they win uh, like a knockout game the, the country went crazy it was like 11 at night everybody's like flares and stuff so it was a, a great experiences uh, experience in 2006 and then I actually went to Crimea because it's like, it's uh, Mediterranean. It's like, uh, I would compare it to, I guess, the French south of France or like Spain um, in terms of that climate. 
And uh, 2008, I went, I was more so on the West in my city for about a month. And 2008 was the last time that I've been back. Well, before we wrap up, I like to do fun questions with the guests. You want some fun questions? Yeah, sure. I'm ready. Who are the first two famous Ukrainian-born Americans that come to mind? Uh, Alex Trebek. He's actually Ukrainian. <laughs> the guy from the original Star Trek. Um, what's his name? The captain. Uh, what is William Shatner? Oh, okay. Both of them, huh? Yep. Some of them, for, uh, because of like the whole last names and like immigrant persecution, they, a lot of them, uh, there was a lot of actors that changed their names, uh, first and last names that were Ukrainian. Mm, Mila Kunis, I believe, is Ukrainian. Yeah, and uh, some, I forget what's her name, Joe Jokovich, Jovovich. She was in like Resident Evil movies, the main character. She's uh, Ukrainian too. What's the first word that comes to mind when I say Vladimir Putin? Uh, asshole. <laughs> I wasn't even going to like say something. That's exactly what came to mind. How many languages do you speak? Uh, fluently too, but then I understand Russian and can barely speak it. I understand Polish, but don't really speak it because it's on that Cyrillic alphabet and like a Slavic language. I can understand a lot of Slavic languages, but certain words are a little, you know, different from language to language. Can you say that last sentence in the second language that you know, besides English? Uh, which last sentence? The last sentence you spoke about, I don't really understand. Oh, uh, I still speak with my mom and my grandmother and my aunt and stuff. That's but it's cool. like a combination because my mom speaks English. Now it's like half of the sentence is English, half is Ukrainian. It's just like <laughs> a weird morph that um, I guess my brain is used to. I think I, I've actually been asked what language you dream in before. And it's weird because I, my, I can switch my brain to think in different languages. I don't know if that's just me or other people have the same experiences, but I can sometimes think in Ukrainian, sometimes in English. And I think obviously English is now my dominant language of like processing. But um, sometimes that actually happens, which is weird. Language limits what we can experience and do. So I imagine you live a fuller life because you have more languages in your mind. And I know it's much better to learn languages at an early age. So did you learn English at about age five when you moved yep, to that's the why, Yeah, that's why I don't retain really an accent. I don't think I have an accent. If I came here when I was about 15, because like you said, <clears throat> before your mind really starts kind of like connecting the neurons or whatnot and really like starting developing into an adult mind, you can pick up languages really quickly and have that a native kind of tongue to that language. But if you come here at 15, 16, 17, and you, you're here 30, 40 years, you will retain that you know, accent regardless, which is mm. interesting. We're going through a mass extinction of languages. Do you think you will teach your kids the, the Ukraine language? I think so. Fluently, I would like to. Or even other languages, you know, Spanish, it's more of a, you know, international language behind English, just to like, like you said, expand that, you know, mental processing, because I think it expanded my mind to other things like music and instruments and stuff like that. And like the absorption, I think it's, it's easier to absorb information because like you're learning, you learn in different languages and you can pro like your processing power. Like if you want to relate it to a computer, 
is like more defined or you have more RAM to, to compute it. I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like you pick up music and different other things that are very um, pattern uh, dependent a lot quicker. Do you think the entire world will speak English someday? I feel like everywhere I've traveled, most people know English. Um, I feel like everybody in Iceland knows English. Western Ukrainians know English. Or like other countries, they're brought up with multiple languages just because it's like an international focus. Um, I know I was in um, the Alps before, and because the Alps region, everybody knows like Italian, French, uh, German, and like Swiss. So it's like it's dependent where you live and kind of like the focus on education because you learn uh, when you're in Ukraine, you learn Ukrainian, you automatically technically know Russian to a certain extent. And then you usually learn English or German or another language like that as well. So I feel like a large percentage of the world already knows English. And I think it, it may be a norm where everybody can speak English and kind of whatever their native language as well. Yeah, from what I understand, over 2 billion people speak English of the 7 billion in the world. And although English is considered the language of money and the language of the internet, certainly, I don't, I don't think other languages are going to go extinct fully. I don't, I don't think Hin, Hindi or Spanish or China, uh, Mandarin, I don't think any of that is going anywhere anytime soon. But it is, it is interesting to notice when you travel around the world that you can almost always find somebody to speak English regardless of where you are. The, the least amount of English I've heard is in places like Thailand, which is surprising. I think they're learning English slowly, but especially in like the northern parts, Chiang Mai specifically, they don't speak very much English. Of course, places like Cambodia and Vietnam, not as much English. But also the older crowd in places like Czech Republic, which is very close to Ukraine, they lived through Soviet, the lived in the Soviet bloc at one time. They obviously weren't taught English at a young age, so they never picked it up. And I can tell that they resent people like me just trying to buy bread at the store because they just don't even like to hear English, it seems like. Yeah, and they don't need to pay. I mean, Czech Republic is like Prague is one of the top cities I've been to in terms of like uh, architecture and culture. It's actually like one of the main cities that was hardly touched during World War II in, in terms of a capital city. So you have all that like awesome architecture still retained. But yeah, like you said, I think some of the older population can function without English and have without it. And because of their previous situations, you know, as being a, a communist country, like to a certain extent, they may want that lifestyle. Some may don't, but I mean, it, they don't necessarily need to function knowing English. But yeah, some people you run into, you ask for something in Czech Republic, they just look at you. So, <laughs> What's your overall opinion on communism? Like, let's say you had a son who wanted to go into the military and were, he was forced to go and fight communism overseas. Is your is your sense of communism so strong negatively that you would you would encourage that fight against communism and it pervading around the world? Um, I wouldn't encourage. I mean, if if I had a child to join the military, I mean they're they're guided by the orders they get. So if that's that's what they have to do, that's what they have to do. My whole thing is like communism is a flawed system when applied. Uh, you know, as an idea. It has merit, 
in terms of implementation, it's never been implemented to that kind of like, okay, this is our idea. Like, let's do it. It's never like that. It becomes corrupt. I mean, not everybody has an equal distribution of anything. So there's always going to be an elite class that gets everything and everybody else is just kind of like the, the working, you know, little, uh, you know, worker bees per se. And that still happened like in the Soviet Union, you know, like all the ex-KGB people came out of the communism and became all these multi-billionaires. How do you think they, they got you know, different uh, state resources, mines and different other things inherited or it wasn't worked for. It's just one of those things where in theory, it's it's nice and it's like, uh, you know, a fairy tale. It's not it's not logical or practical. There's no there's no real world uh, implementation that, that have worked um, in certain situations. They turn into different, you know, um, you know, dictatorships per will. For, I mean, I think Putin's trying to stay in power for another 30 years and he rewrote the constitution a few times. I mean, there's there's laws about uh, if you disagree with him um, in terms of protesting, you get arrested, but you can protest if you agree with them. So it just it, it's not a you know great system. I don't know what other country would implement it at this state, but I don't. If somebody had to go to war over it. I mean, it's just one of those things where I think it would have to be justified, not only because it's communism. Do you ever argue communism or against communism with people online? Have you ever found yourself doing that? In school and college, you have like all these like people coming from this like, uh, you know, white collar situation where, you know, they learn something in school and it's just out of a book and they think this is great, but it's like you, you haven't lived it. I mean, it's like one of those generalist over like practitioners. I mean, like in terms of like my business, I've been in the trenches. That's why I think I'm good at what I do and not only have read in the book, but have real world implementations. And when you live through something or an event, you're more capable to speak about it instead of somebody that tells me something is better because they read about it. So I know I kind of deviated from fun questions, but I just find the communism talk so fascinating that I can't help myself. But this will be fun. I'm going to give you a name and you tell me, in your opinion, if the person is underrated or overrated. Okay. Warren Buffett. Underrated. Tom Hanks. I would say underrated. He's a great actor. Barack Obama. Overrated. Not. <laughs> I mean, I just think like just policy-wise. Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, underrated just because like the the influence he's had just simply because of like content and trying to give back is he from ukraine he's from uh belarus from minsk belarus oh yeah i met him one time at his book signing for his most recent book because his dad's store is in northern new jersey wine uh what is it? the wine library mm. so i talked to him briefly uh at some point my goal is to have him on my podcast um just uh you know Kind of a similar upbringing. Obviously, he has uh, a nine-figure net worth right now. It's one of the differences, but <laughs> in terms of he and he came here a little younger too. I think he came um, in the '80s, I believe. Yeah, he'd probably have a fourteen-figure net worth had he invested in Uber. That's a story he likes to tell a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, he said he had that initial round, but he thought it would be the implementation. It would only be like applicable to rich people. Um, and nobody would think like it's the same thing. It's like Airbnb is one of the biggest like, uh, you know, rental um, sites without having, you know, owning one property. And like Uber and Lyft has the biggest fleet of 
vehicles without owning them. Like you don't process that until it becomes a norm. The Airbnb thing is fascinating right now with people who took out mortgages and just plan to yeah, rent. make money off of it. Yes. I actually, I mean, I've actually done that when we were, we didn't have kids. We have extra bedrooms. I'm um, 15 minutes from uh, Princeton University. I have the College of New Jersey in my town. Um, I have Ryder University, the town over, Thomas Edison University. There were a lot of parents going back and forth. They think the National um, like Rowing Center is in Princeton too. So like we did it for a while and we're like, whatever, let's charge 120 a night just to make it like what people, we, we wouldn't think people would pay. And people were just like booking like crazy. I'm like, okay, well, whatever, let's... I mean, we have these extra bedrooms. If you live in the home, it gets a little bit annoying in terms of privacy and you like share bathrooms. But I mean, it was a fun experience. I met some like interesting people. So, Well, Roman, this was fun, man. I enjoyed meeting you a lot. Where can people go and find your work online? Yeah, I mean, you can Google Roman Prokopchuk. I mean, it's not a very common name. In Eastern Europe, it is. But I feel like I dominate the first page. Uh, my podcast is The Digital Savage Experience and the company is Novazor Digital. Really enjoyed this, man. Keep doing great work. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for joining us. I never take it lightly that you've chosen to tune in. If you enjoyed this episode, please do one of two things. Either send it to a friend or give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, let's do big things together. Thank you, friends. 